This episode contains discussion of violence against the LGBTQ plus community and discussion of homophobic and transphobic stereotypes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to another episode of 2024. I am Joseph. My pronouns are he, him. I am joined by Amelia Mulfair, they, them, and Danny Hendrick, she, her. And today, we are going to talk about the LGBTQ plus community and about queer theory. We're going to talk about the current political situations as well as a bunch of theoretical stuff. Amelia is a junior political science and philosophy double major at Stetson University. They're the director of Stetson Votes and a legal researcher at the law firm of Mastri and DaCosta. Danny is a sophomore, religious studies and sociology double major, and is the vice president of the SGA at Stetson University. Thanks for coming on to the show. Yeah, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, very exciting. All right. So to begin, I want to talk about what has been on the minds of the collective American conscience. This has been the subject of much outrage by a lot of people on the right. The gender of a potato and Lil Nas X. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would love to start with the gender of the potato. Okay, so right as this was coming out, I happened to be sitting with one of my friends holding her phone, like making a Spotify playlist or whatever. And her family group chat just starts going off, like with all this like outrage about Hasbro's decisions. And I, I think what we, sh something that hasn't necessarily been talked about here is the way that this is like directly, like financially motivated. Yeah, that's definitely the only thing that comes to mind for me that's like right. noteworthy uh, about this quote-unquote issue is that like at the end of the day this is just a corporation utilizing and employing like a mainstream social justice rhetoric uh, just to like maximize their right. profits which is like good in that that signals that there is some sort of demand for gender inclusive or gender equal products um, but it's still like a corporation maximizing right. profits uh, on the backs of queer people. I don't remember precisely the organization, but when I was in, um, when I was at Orlando Pride in 2019, there was a, a organization that had all these flyers and posters saying queer liberation and not gay capitalism, right? <laughs> and um, it, it kind of brings a, a slightly different aspect to this question of like assimilation versus liberation mm -hmm. for the queer community and about how like even queerness like is commodified absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. I, I think that actually like plays into like the little nas x conversation right and that like you know i'll preface it that you know i love little nas x you know he's great yeah. um he's thriving you, you know you'll have to see a gay black man thriving yeah. um his aesthetics are great you know he's like very you know, I love camp aesthetics, personally. Right. Um, and, like, it's always important to have representation, um, especially, like, for the intersection of identities that's, like, gay and black. Um, but I think he definitely is feeding into some more assimilationist ideas of queerness in that 
he he's uh let me think this he's presenting an idea of queerness that fits the stereotype of what it means to be a gay man um that's been fed to our society by media by movies by tv um by like the news you know this is the stereotype that is reproduced and the stereotype i'm referring to is like the the over sexualized gay man stereotype um and it's a harmful stereotype you know it, it's you know, what does that say about gay gay men who aren't over-sexualized and they don't over-sexualize themselves? It feels like they're not enough of a gay man, right? Um, and, right, so, so, so Lil Nas X, is, that's my issue, is that through assimilation, right, he's feeding into uh, harmful stereotypes that misrepresent the gay male community. And I think it's important to note that neither of us are... I have withdrawn my participation <laughs> from the gay male community. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think with this, like, it's important to see also, like, in the dialogue, I, I've continued to hear people talking about that he is being, um, like, anti-assimilationist in this because he is, because he is coming out, like, against the church right and that that in and of itself and that he's not trying to be like respectable mm -hmm. necessarily mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I, I think that's certainly part of it right the way that like he has um presented himself and um been um unashamed to come and bring like legitimate critique in an artistic way but also understanding where that where those stereotypes like come into play too, but right. with stereotypes too, um, like I think it's important to see that you can be, you can fall into a stereotype without doing that because of the stereotype, right? Like I may be like terrible at driving, but that isn't because like. I'm gay or whatever. That's because I'm just terrible at driving, right? <laughs> but um, whatever sorts of stereotypes these are, and even, like, for, like, if... So, like, you said, like, how the gay male community is often, like, over-sexualized. Even more so, I would say, the trans women, the community right. of trans women, right. the same is done, too. Mm -hmm. And how important it can be to take that back on our own terms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we're seeing that too with Lil Nas X is now being able to do that on his own terms. Right. I, I think it's uh, it's important to draw the line between like who's at fault for stereotypes, right? Is Lil yeah. Nas X at fault for, you know, playing into this stereotype of like the over-sexualized gay man or is it the fault of those who produce media and knowledge in our society that created that stereotype right. and perpetuate that stereotype. And that's not, that's not a question I've made my mind up on, yeah. but I do think that you can't, I don't think you can separate the implications of, you know, the music video and this personal image that Lil Nas X is putting forward. I don't think you can separate that from the implications it'll have uh, for this harmful stereotype. Um, but I, I think it, what you said about respectability is also like very important, you know, refusing to 
play by the norms of conversation and dialogue of our society um, is definitely a like that's like I don't think that's an assimilationist right move. I right. think that's you know rejecting really assimilation. So yeah. so that's a good point to make. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think actually I think um, what you have to well, you, the the line you said about you know trans women also being over sexualized I'm not sure how relevant that is uh, insofar as um, I think the reason trans women are over sexualized is different than that for gay men and that I agree I think trans women are over sexualized uh, as a result of the sexual arena being the only arena in which trans women are like valued or accepted, you know, really to the extent that they're fetishized, let's be honest. But um, in in that regard to over-sexualize oneself as a trans woman or to play into that stereotype is to attempt to make an attempt to gain some sort of sexual capital in a way by latching on to the field that society uh, accepts you in almost as like a survival mechanism right well i'm not sure if the same thing can be said about the gay man who over sexualizes himself yeah i think that's right i think it's also important too um when we talk about this conversation about allowing um little and any creative any artist to um come and define their own terms right define mm-hmm. the space that they're working in it's also important that we not put any labels on him that he doesn't put on himself, right? Mm -hmm. Because I saw a lot of conversation last week calling him like a gender non-conforming artist, right? In a way that wouldn't necessarily happen with, say, someone like, um, let's, some white, gay male like troy savant say mm-hmm. who doesn't conform to gender but because he's never put the label of gender non-conforming on himself we would never give that to him right um right? has like harry styles ever called himself gender non-conforming do we know he hasn't like, called himself that no like, i don't believe so i consider gender non-conforming to be rather a claim about uh the extent to which someone does not, you know, conform to society's norms and expectations right. of a gender, right? Not a gender identity in and of itself. Right, right. So, so I think to the extent that gender nonconforming is used as a description, yes. or like uh, a qualifier on someone who doesn't right. um, conform, like, you know, conform to yeah. gender, then like, I think it'd be fair to say a little not sex is gender yes. nonconforming. But I, I think in that conversation, we have to realize how... In all arenas, when gay men, sorry, when gay black men or any black man doesn't perform masculinity in the way that is expected, we often strip that masculinity from them. Yes, absolutely. Because masculinity really, I think, is societally defined in like a cishet white colonialist uh, manner. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing masculinity can be right you know if we look to like a lot of trans masculine people they're really defining masculinity in like a way that i would consider like akin to the masculinity of like lord of the rings you know the fellowship of the ring you know like a band of brothers kind of supportive communal masculinity um and to me that's like 
and, and for other extents, you know, that's very powerful and like right. figuring out an alternative to toxic masculinity. Right. Um, but yeah, it's important to keep in mind that there's gender nonconforming because, you know, they're not conforming to the uh, cishet white colonialist masculinity or femininity or gender nonconforming in that they're not conforming to any gender norms at all, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, you have you have a lot of like these stereotypes. We need to put the majority of the blame on the systems in place. Absolutely. And when we address these types of things, we need to address we need to address it in a really broad in a intersectional way. We need to address the actual systems that create these stereotypes, that create a lot of these societal um, tendencies and beliefs. Right. And that, that's really what queer theory and trans theory right. is all about. It's, you know, addressing sexuality and gender as like a field of power, right? A right. result of um, and a creation of hierarchies, uh, as well as like a historical and political process and the way that those processes create categories right that's really all that queer theory and trans theory is about yeah. is analyzing those uh, power structures yeah and i think as we move into that conversation um i feel like so often we talk about how um like transphobia and homophobia and our aversion to like queerness like comes from like these western ideas and these colonial ideas mm -hmm. but also recognizing that our definitions of queerness and our framework of what that is, as well as our framework of masculinity and femininity, mm -hmm. how that is also inherently yeah. like colonialist. Right, right. Right. And like, because you'll often hear like people, I think it's important to talk about like the way that um, not every society has like this clear cut definition of like masculinity and femininity and gender roles and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think we can do that without labeling something queer that doesn't label itself as queer. Like often like, so like for example, like two spirit folks mm -hmm. often like call themselves queer. Mm -hmm. But if that isn't a label that you put on yeah, yourself, okay. then see. it's important that right. we don't. Right. Yeah. In like a, a pre-colonial North right. America, right? Like pre-whenever colonization empiricism started, you know, uh, a two-spirit individual and indigenous tribe, like they wouldn't be considered queer. Right. Right. Like probably just wasn't a concept that, of, like, maybe I'm completely wrong, you know, but I, I don't know if I am. Um. Yeah, and what you're talking about there, I think, is really gets back to just, like, the concept of queer theory, which is, like, what it means to be queer, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be trans or cis. It's all politically and historically bound. Right. It's bound in the political processes and hierarchies and power hierarchies of that time, as well as right. everything that led up to that time. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, let, 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 let's jump right into um, the uh, nuances of queer theory and such. It's, it's pretty much, um, from what you've said already, it's pretty much an entirely different way of looking at stuff. Right. Right. Um, 
yeah, queer theory, really with any critical theory, right? So queer right. queer theory is like a sub subgenre of critical theory, which right. is just like a social philosophy approach that focuses on critiquing society and culture and like the power and knowledge structures therein, right? Um, like the way knowledge is produced, the way power is produced. Um, and, and personally, for me, once I've studied, once I've began to study critical theory and queer theory specifically, I, I, I say queer theory, um, but I'm referring to like queer and trans theory, of course. Uh, it, it's just completely like changed the way I've seen and understood every interaction between myself, members of my community, um, expectations, norms. Like it, it, once you start to study it, it really pervades everything. No, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, like how you say that, like once we have more, not, once we establish this paradigm and this framework with, within which we're working, mm -hmm. that shifts everything else that we look at. Right. And I think that it's important that we come to this conversation as well as any um, with the understanding that these ideas like are not our own mm -hmm. and that we like are also recognize that this is like super new, like at least like specifically like intellectually. Yeah. yeah. Like relative to other, like relative academic, to other academic mm -hmm. practice. Queer and, theory didn't really start right. as like a defined field of saying to like the right. 1990s or something. Right. Um, but I, I also want to kind of bring up this idea of like how, like prior to that, um, it existed often within these um, ideas of like prose and poetry, right? Like without like this next necessary like academic like framework, like people yeah. like James Baldwin and like mm -hmm. Audre Lorde and even like Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg, right? Like, I'm about to start reading that soon. I'm really yeah, excited. no, I still haven't read it yet. But um, the way that um, Krinus is inherently like tied to art, right? right the way right. that we express, yeah, like Krinus is tied to art, whether that be in like the ballroom scene mm. of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, whether that be in the pre-AIDS um, days of our queer, of our thriving, we have all these thriving queer communities, yeah. right, that didn't necessarily have this academic, like, I think it's important to recognize that, like, people like, Marsha P. Johnson mm -hmm. and um, Sylvia Rivera, like no one's going to say, at least I would fight them if they did, that <laughs> they don't have an understanding of queerness. Right. Right. So, yeah, I definitely misspoke when I said like queer theory began in the 1990s. Yeah, no, no, no. What, what no, I meant no, no. is like as yeah. a, like, a gen like a, in the philosophical, like mainstream philosophical realm, you know, the like contemporary uh was contemporarily known as like queer theory I yeah guess. um but like yes without a doubt um like pre uh aids crisis you know or pandemic genocide depending how you want to 
say it, um, there's 100% like queer knowledge and trans knowledge that was being created on the own terms of those who are queer and of those who are trans. And really, you know, maybe one reason that queer theory didn't start, quote unquote, until the 1990s is because prior to that, you know, you had this massive uh, wave of death through the queer community that like we lost knowledge it's sad to think about but like we lost uh elders in our community who had done this work that like we're now doing now like slur discourse or whatnot yeah people had done that knowledge and and that that gets this concept of like sanctioned ignorance that because of like the structural violence that led to the aids epidemic right because there was uh homophobia um informing political policy uh, because there was economic inequality, um, the AIDS epidemic happened. And because the AIDS epidemic happened, uh, we lost this knowledge that allows us to almost be like unknowingly ignorant about what could have been. Yeah. So in my like personal life, I um, almost exclusively interact with people who at least used to be like intensely homophobic, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Um, Because like that's the truth for my family, for all of my family's friends, for everyone, right? And so how we, how I approach these conversations with them is very different than the way that I approach it with even people who are already on the grounds of like allyship. Right. Right. And... Like, in those conversations, like, even just establishing, like, language can be very, can be a very difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we didn't have even the term transgender until the 90s, right? So not only is this language new to them, it's also sometimes new to us. Right, right. Right? And Absolutely. so defining those terms and then having these conversations and being like, like, no, like, actually, that belief that you have is rooted in X, Y, Z. Or that, like, thing that you, like, think is always true is just a product of where you are and where right. we are. And this gets back to something you, you said earlier about, like, our idea of what it means to be queer and what our idea of what it means to be trans is, like, a nature of a result of like a colonialist ideology. Um, And it's the same thing with those things you just mentioned, right? This is like the all encompassing nature of ideology. You know, it pervades everything that we think about and the way that we think about it and why, you know, it's almost inescapable. Really the best we can do is just be aware of what ideological like presuppositions we, we hold. Um, But it's something that I think should always be like, fought against or attempted to be rejected. Right. I, I, I want to talk more about um, the impact that the AIDS epidemic really had on a lot of this discourse because, like, Amelia, you said it, it, it was a genocide pretty well, much. Yeah. And I, I think that it's important here that we def- that we don't define it as an epidemic, right? If we're going to say, because 
academic Im implies like a certain area and even if that area was the queer community mm -hmm. that that is still a global thing okay right? okay so I, so you yeah. so i think we're fair to use the term pandemic if you'd like okay. or crisis yeah honestly i wasn't really want. sure what the difference yeah. between epidemic and pandemic right so so yeah we can just define those terms. so academic epidemic um if you'll recall in the um in the early stages of um the COVID 19 mm -hmm. pandemic um it was on march 11th once several countries had already gotten mm -hmm. a, a, a few hundred cases that they started calling it a pandemic right. because otherwise yeah. it was just concentrated in one area i assume from so that which is an epidemic like pan, and then pandemic yeah. is everywhere yeah. quote unquote yeah. um yeah i'll know how i made it a year through covid without understanding the difference between those two no worries maybe i learned it once and then forgot right um, right uh and then where we want to define it as like a genocide i i don't know if i am knowledgeable enough about what constitutes a genocide as well as like the the details surrounding the aids pandemic um i yeah i just don't know if i know know enough to make the political claim because that's like a political yes. claim so, right? that's I, exactly. so i wouldn't be making that political claim because i also have no um i understanding again that mm -hmm. it's a very complicated mm -hmm. term with a lot of nuanced history and usage and sometimes even um we see that term being watered down but we also see that term um having so much weight that we're afraid to use it right. appropriately and so i i think it's important that we just define what happened without necessarily using that yeah the yeah. fact that we're having a conversation where we're actually like debating like if you could potentially define it as a genocide that right. says volumes about the impact that it yeah. had absolutely yes. and like there are you know people who think right i was gonna say like philosophers but there's people who think that i look up to um that define it as a genocide right yeah so i mean i'm sure that there's a like legitimate or some sort of validity there to that claim yes um, yeah i mean I don't, I don't know how much there is to talk about other than there Other was, than that, uh, Ronald Reagan was bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, there was homeless, like I mentioned earlier, like political policy uh, informed by an ideology, right? right? An ideology that that perpetuates and maintains uh, homophobic, transphobic, like queerphobic norms. Um, you know that that. And still is right informed and or informing political policy like we saw in Arkansas, you know, a bill passed or legislation passed that, you know, uh, limits like severely limits access to healthcare for trans youth. Right. Like life saving healthcare. I don't want to like uh, skimp around that. Like it's yeah. two beer blockers are life saving. Yeah indisputably to me I and mean, i guess there's some like disputableness to it because people do dispute it but yeah they're wrong so i think it's interesting how we kind of often have this idea of there's the old kind of homophobia and we're now dealing with a different 
new kind of homophobia, right? But when I, so like when I was a kid, um, my, um, I went to a prayer meeting, um, my father. It was my father, myself, and one man, um, probably close to 70 or 75. And so not, not too terribly young, but still alive and active and very involved in the church. And we were talking about something else. And somehow this issue of like gay marriage came up. And Mr. Lyons just very aptly said, he just said, you know, I really just wish we could kick him out of the state like we used to do in Kentucky. And so this idea that the ultimate goal is banishment, I, I think is very fitting. And it's not like I'm very old. Like this is <laughs> less than 10 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, w- without a doubt, that form or that homophobic rhetoric still exists. Um, I think at a minimum, what I'll say is that it's been hidden behind a facade yeah. of neoliberal rhetoric, right? That's, oh, I should have uh, some sort of individual freedom or a right to be not within the realm of homosexuality, right? Um, or or some, some claim along that line. Or it's just like, sure, you can be trans, but you shouldn't be trans before this age because this is what my idea is of how old you have yep. to be to make you know a po- medical decision or whether transness is and real i think or with not. that like the way that queerness specifically transness is taken and just completely just used as a tool for whatever sort of bigotry they've decided at the moment right like often like we use like transness right like especially so like the whole idea of like bathroom bills right and that sort of thing um first of all like recognizing that um trans women are one of the most likely groups to be um sexually assaulted in their lifetimes yeah right but with that discussion, there is this shift of blame from um, family figures where that often takes place from um, every issue that's actually taking place, whether that be, especially when we see conservative lawmakers at the moment being um, called out for their abusive behaviors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that we are shifting the blame from the actual cause and saying, and we're making, it's not even like we can point to, or that they are pointing to specific instances of people pretending to be trans women entering the women's restrooms and doing all these terrible things. It's a matter of them making up this issue so that they can both duly deflect from their own violence Mm -hmm. and deflect from the humanity of trans folks yes absolutely it's 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 fear-mongering plain and simple uh you know in order to employ like trans people trans women uh to as a scapegoat right 
like yeah, no, no one will be um, committing sexual violence, you know, if we keep you know trans women out of the women's bathroom, right? And right. and like, let's be honest, if a trans woman is to go into the men's bathroom, they're gonna like that. That's not gonna go well. More likely than not, that is not gonna right. go. And well. and they definitely don't want trans men in the women's bathroom. That's what I'm right? saying. Like right, like. Trans men who like have these huge beards and like mm-hmm. great big muscles. Yeah. Who and see that's my thing, is even if you don't look like a man should look, or you don't look like a woman should look, mm-hmm. at me as a trans person who for the most part does not pass, I don't fit anywhere mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like i am going to do whatever is safest for me on in that particular moment on that particular day yeah right and that is completely regardless of how other people might think about my actions mm-hmm. right because i can't be worried about what some joe schmo like thinks about like what i'm doing Unless I think that Joe Schmo is going to, like, commit violence against me. Right. Right. And I'm actively concerned mm-hmm. about that. And I want to, like, as, as a trans person as well, right, like, when I, you know, have to make the decision, like, which gendered bathroom do I go in, I, it's impossible to not consider that, like, there will be, like, if I go in a woman's restroom, like, there will be women who, like, are upset you know that there's someone who looks like a boy in you know the bathroom with them and like that that does play into my consideration like i don't want to make people scared that i'm going to sexually assault them um but also you know i'm scared that i get sexually assaulted if i go in the men's bathroom right but but really what these bathroom bills do um and and even you know like the trans anti-trans healthcare bill um they substitute like trans thoughts and trans value judgments that trans people make for themselves about themselves in a usually like altruistic manner for the thoughts of cis people right right? the bathroom bill says no my cis perspective on trans issues is right and we're going to center my cis belief but understandable given what they think about trans people Uh, and, and you can see this also played out in rhetoric about like oh, should the trans person disclose their trans status before sleeping, like, with a stranger, right? Like, I can guarantee you that a cis person does not need to tell a trans person what to do there. Like, the trans person is 100% aware of all the possibilities. Right. And the decision that they make is what they think will ultimately preserve their longevity, right? At the end of the day, I think that matters quite a bit. And I think to your point right there of how much we consider cis feelings and cis thoughts mm-hmm. um on this discourse of the bathroom belt one of the biggest points that i kept hearing against it uh, against all trans bathroom bills was well cis women have been attacked because of this right cis women in um women's restrooms have been attacked because of this issue which is terrible mm-hmm. and awful. But you shouldn't have to 
you shouldn't have to hear a sympathetic story about a cis person for you to care about trans people, right? And as like heart-wrenching as it is for these terrible things to be happening to cis women, we need to make sure that we are taking care of those issues at the same time we're we are right. centering trans voices. Right. Like protecting right. cis women from sexual violence is not mutually exclusive from Correct. protecting trans people from sexual violence. Right. And really this whole notion of like centering cis beliefs, again, it comes back to the ideology, right? It's this ideology that cis like is the norm is the correct right that should be at the center of value judgments um and and to me that's really what a lot of queer theory and activism for me is what that's what it's about is decentering cis and trans normativity um so like one analyzing where cis heteronormativity manifests itself and then two you know dismantling that yeah Mm-hmm. And I think, too, as far as when we are able to dismantle... We're only able to dismantle systems when we recognize that they're systems, right? We're only able mm-hmm. to take care of problems when we see that there's a right. problem there. Right. And, and I think so often we get so caught up in, well, so-and-so trans person was mean to me one day, so-and-so gay man was like, like, called me names or whatever. And we get so caught up in this individual idea mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. Um, or like, a le- me as a man, a lesbian refused to sleep with me. Ah, like, we, we get so caught up in these individual, right. like, feelings against queer people mm-hmm. that we never actually are willing to take a step back and say, this is an issue that gender in and of itself, sexuality in and of itself, is a social construction. Yes. Right? You have to take so many steps back mm-hmm. from your day-to-day interactions mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. order to be able to say that and to right. see that. And, and that's something I, was, I referenced, I think, earlier in that it's a neoliberal ideology of individualism, individual freedom, in the, like a the centering of the individual at like systems of beliefs and norms um, that leads to these uh, uh, transphobic and homophobic violence. Right. right? I think if a broader like systemic ideological approach and uh, analysis is taken to these societal issues that, you know, a conservative may say is like a result of transness, perhaps they could understand that, no, it's a result of like structural violence and inequality. Right. Hopefully that explanation would. Yeah. um, And I think too, so like, I I heard this in reference to feminism, but I I think it's helpful because also recognizing that um, feminine, that like feminist thought is directly related to queer thought. Like they are not like you cannot separate queer thought from feminist. Is thought. that is that a claim you're putting forwards right now? Would you disagree with that? I haven't made up my mind yet. Okay. Um, but, I, but I it's something that... that I've been actively considering okay. lately. Okay. Um, 
Only because, like, I don't know how much, like, the struggles of a gay man related to his, like, masculinity or, like, or uh, if someone, like, if if a gay man gets upset because he's excluded from masculinity, like, I, I don't know how much feminist yes. activism. I mean, I can yes. see arguments on both sides. I'm, I'm not sure is what I'm saying. Also recognizing that... So I, I'm going to make a claim about homophobia okay. that you can agree or disagree with. Okay. And that is that the purpose of homophobia is not to hurt and to, like, deplatform and whatever queer people, mm-hmm. gay men in specific. The purpose of homophobia in the way that it exists is to preserve a certain idea of masculinity. Okay. And um. it, it is an idea of masculinity, an idea of like women and, and queer people that directly centers like the powerful, like cishet white man, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that queerness is understood from that, like about a month ago, there was someone on on the internet who was a a cishet man who was saying that he dressed how he did because it was helping to normalize, right? And then he later claimed that he got his fashion inspiration <laughs> from none other than Marsha P. Johnson. Yeah, of I course. And right. I have a whole set of things to say to that. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, but what was most fascinating to me, at least before he said that he got his fashion <laughs> from, from her, my, the first thing at the front of my mind was how he said, how he justified it. Because he said... Me normalizing this makes it easier for a closeted bi boy in Kansas to like express himself mm-hmm. without like being beat up. I don't know about you, but my experience in like a homophobic community was if I, no matter how many times I had convinced myself. And I thought everyone around me that I was a straight man. (laughs) I, if I wore the wrong colored pants, Mm -hmm. I was going to get called like slurs. Yeah. Like at church. Like that, that literally happened. Mm -hmm. I, I wore maroon colored pants to church one day and got called slurs because of it. And that wasn't, because I told them, I was like, no, I'm straight. Like, I have a girlfriend. Like, you can see that. <laughs> Look at my beard. But, <laughs> right. Um, I cannot grow facial hair, by the way. Um, but. Well, the metaphorical beard. Yeah. Yes, yeah. of course. I, I, was yeah. ins- I was ensuring that the metaphor was <laughs> solidified. But um, <laughs> my um, experience with that was it didn't matter. Oh, and I even said, like, oh, well, I saw such and such straight man do this or mm-hmm. i saw this like even old dude like right. dress like this but and they're, they're like, wrong too harry styles is wrong too you know right well right. then they're 
Yeah, the slur. Slur too. And that happened on a consistent basis because it was never about just hating gay people. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, sorry to cut you off. I I think I actually uh, um, agree with this, at least to some extent, in that, like, what's seen as, like, a quote-unquote, like, good homosexual is, like, the gay man who isn't uh, effeminate. Um, Correct. Doesn't talk about all the men that he sleeps with, Correct. the men he's married to. Doesn't like hold hands or kiss a man in public. It's like the whole out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and, and actually, if, if the idea is that homophobia's purpose is to preserve masculinity, then I actually do see the connection between queerness and feminism in that homophobia's purpose is to preserve masculinity. It's like to preserve masculinity, why? Because that idea of masculinity is seen as valuable or like a norm. Um, I I don't think you can say that, make a claim about masculinity without also making some sort of implicit claim about femininity, right? Right. Because they're they're tied together, like uh, Bouvard would maybe say. Um, And I still... I'm still very far mm-hmm. from my understanding and my personal definition of masculinity and femininity. Like that is a very hard right. definition. And to be honest, I think I've to draw. stopped trying to define yeah. masculinity and femininity on my own terms and rather just analyzing it like what would be referred to as like the received view of masculinity or femininity. And like right. if you say masculinity or femininity, like what's the general person gonna understand right. that to mean? Um but Yes, I, I I do see homophobia's purpose to preserve masculinity. Uh huh. But then I'm curious, uh, what like that implies about homophobia against lesbians? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and maybe also, maybe okay. I see something in that. Yeah. If a woman is dating a woman, that means like she's not. Da- if a woman's a lesbian, that means she's not dating a man. Um, which is like antithetical to this right. form of masculinity and that we're talking about. not only is she not dating a man, but neither of the two involved yeah. are catering yeah. to men. We, we see this with like bi erasure, right? And like how that happens. And we can sit here and talk all day mm. on the terms that that happens on. Yeah. But um, with, there's almost always like when a, when a man comes out as bi, also recognizing that this is going to be nece- this is going to be unnecessarily like binary, but mm-hmm. it, it will get us to the mm-hmm. point. Um, when a man comes out as bi, like everyone's like, "Oh, he's gay. He just hasn't right." The idea that like that. bisexual is a right. step on the path to gayness, right? And Oh, you're and when a woman and when a woman comes out is by. Oh, you just haven't found the right. You just haven't found the right man yet. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's almost always the response uh-huh. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because not only is are we supposed to cater to men mm-hmm. in our queerness, we're supposed to cater to men in everything. Right. Lesbianism is a complete. Uh, if you're a lesbian, right, that's like one of the strongest moves a woman can make towards defining themselves outside of men. Are you comfortable talking about political lesbianism? Of course. I love okay. political lesbianism. Yeah. Uh, political lesbianism is this idea that 
it, it's it began like the radical feminist movement um what of the 60s i want to say 60s and 70s 60s i believe and 70s. Yeah. And, and it was the idea that uh women should attempt to like separate themselves in every way possible from men right and uh in the boardrooms in every aspect of society uh but also in the home and in the bedroom um and that it was this idea that, like, even if you're not, you know, I don't know what language she used here, like, born a lesbian, um, I guess, like, is it's, I don't know what proper way to say that, but like, people can de- uh, decide to be a lesbian, essentially, in practice in order to separate themselves from being defined uh, by men. Um, I, I quite like political lesbianism. Um, it informs a lot of my own, like, sexual and romantic decisions in that uh like t for t or trans for trans um is like a it's not a sexual orientation but it's a sexual practice of only being sexually and romantically involved with other like trans and non-binary people um for reasons similar to political lesbianism right right? for the purpose of separating yourself from cisness from for the purpose of uh being with people who can actually understand everything that you've gone through. Because as much as you know, trans people can try and explain the experience to cis people, it's something that you have to live to fully understand. Sure. Not to suggest that you know, there's one way to be trans, but... Right. How do you feel about this conversation of um, that I've been hearing recently of like anyone who like rejects the binary... Like is non-binary. So we talked about earlier how yeah. you don't want to like apply labels to anyone who doesn't identify with it, right? Yeah. Um and, and I agree, right? To me, non-binary and someone who's non-binary is someone who identifies as non-binary, you know. And like you may say that that's circular, but I really don't care. Yeah. Um and also like if a binary, someone identifying as a binary cishet man does nothing other than say that they're non-binary, to me, that's enough to make them non-binary. So, like, society can see them as a man. Um, everyone in their life can see them as a man. But to me, I'm not sure the extent to which that overpowers their claim, yeah. overcomes their claim to non-binary, non-binariness, non-binarality. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, those are my thoughts on the matter. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, I think it does. I, I think it kind of also brings us to this, you know, also like in the reverse of like, no matter how much you perceive someone as like, like for example, like someone that you might perceive as like a trans woman. Let's say like a cis man has done everything that like would be perceived like as stuff that like a trans Mm -hmm. woman would do even to the point of like changing their name yeah yeah. and entirely changing the way they dress but maybe even going as so far as exclusively using she her pronouns Mm -hmm. if they say this we see this with some drag queens right we we see this right sure um they are a man Yes. Period. Like they yes. are, a, they are a cis men. Yeah, I, I think you said there at the end about pronouns. Like, 
Right. I see a lot of people conflating, right, pronouns right. and gender. Um, you know, it's like, what's your gender? It's like, oh, I'm she, her, hers. Right, um, right. I even see trans people doing that, which is Oh, really? I haven't seen that. I, I have not seen that. That's yeah. very interesting. Um, but ab- absolutely, what marks your sexual orientation, what mark- markates your gender is what you say it is. If a man only sleeps with men his whole life, only dates men, only gets married to men, um, and they say they're straight, like they're straight. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's important that if you're someone close to that person, maybe you do have a conversation with them. Like, <laughs> I mean, because like, no, no, because like there is this, there is sometimes this tendency, like, for example, to like stay away from like, there's this internalized fear of like being called like a lesbian, for example. Right. Like, and again, letting people claim those on their own terms, yeah. but also ensuring that someone has the chance mm-hmm. to analyze their own yeah like internalized like bigotry mm-hmm. right i sorry it's just when you said that maybe have a conversation my mind went to like two like 90 year old gay male like elders and like they're married and the husband turns to the other husband is like are you sure that you're straight after you've been married for some odd years <laughs> right <laughs> you sure you're still tra- straight yeah. you're not gay but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely important to always be analyzing uh, and critiquing our internalized queerphobia and transphobia, even people who do call themselves queer or trans, right? Right, right. So I um, had this problem, and I re- recently, actually, I'm going to do myself a favor and just read exactly what I wrote. When I first got to college, I was a man learning to truly respect women, which led me to respect the woman inside of myself, which led me to ask why the heck there was a woman inside of me in the first place. Um, it's not and, very gay of you. Right. No, that's not, that's not very gay of me. No, is it? Um, and so, I mean, that, that kind of comes back to my, like, my personal journey. So like for the longest time, like my like understanding with gender was, well, like I am gay, right? Like, I didn't feel comfortable, and I was trying to figure out, like, why I kept feeling uncomfortable with the phrase gay man, mm. and it wasn't the gay part that I had an issue with, I I quickly found out. But also, like, with that piece, like, I couldn't unpack, like, my internalized transphobia or my right. internalized misogyny or my internalized homophobia until I recognized that I was queer, until I recognized that I was a woman, until mm. I recognized... That I was trans, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that step is important. Right? right. But I think it's also important, equally important, maybe more so, to recognize that simply accepting yourself as trans or queer isn't enough to undo any yep. internalized queerphobia or transphobia. Like, I, I'll be upfront, like, I still struggle with internalized transphobia. Like, if there's some uh, young trans gal who just, like, was like a twink prior and like they come out and uh they just like pass within like a month or something of coming out you know i'm like okay come on now like that's ridiculous you should not pass for longer and like that's horrible to say you know like passing is a is a safety mechanism i think first and foremost um and like that's what i've been working on personally lately but being trans doesn't isn't enough to save you from transphobia. Being queer isn't enough to save you from queerphobia. Lil Nas X being gay doesn't mean he can't perpetuate gay stereotypes. Right. Or uh, homophobic stereotypes. Right. And I think, so 
um, we mentioned earlier um, some like queer art. I think now like we see like queer music, right? Trans music. Mm -hmm. We yeah. love it. Yeah. Trans punk. We, mm -hmm. we, we love to see it. Love it. And um, so there's this band that I've been listening to a lot called She, Her, Hers. And they have one song um, where the lead singer, she mentions like, um, why would I want to pass anyhow? Right. Hell yeah. And like, that's how that's kind of like someone else's standard. And yeah. I have very much like had this thought because I personally have only ever, and maybe will only ever, passed like over the phone, right? And part of that is a virtue of me being well over six foot and well over like 200 pounds. Like I'm a large human being. And some of that just in and of itself is read as male mm -hmm. and that can be frustrating but recognizing that for myself also like recently like i've had a lot of people like call me pretty and that really threw me because like it's one of those things like there's a part of me that like wants to be called pretty obviously mm -hmm. but every other part of me has never thought about what that would mean yeah right like if i actually believed that i was pretty mm -hmm. what that would mean for myself right i mean i can tell you it'd mean an unending amount of happiness and confidence right that's right. what it's done for me at least since i started right um and then i'll say another thing on a personal note is like if you want to pass you will pass i don't think it's as hard as people make it out to be per se um and also, you know, most people who are perceiving your gender are going to be cis and not looking out for the things that a trans person will be looking out for. Um, so I'm not sure if I just never interacted with as many, like, trans people, like, before I came out. Mm -hmm. But I have, like, accidentally, like, oh, what's the word? You know the word. Um, when you, like... Clocked. Clock. That's the word. Thank you. I was like, there's, there's like a term for this. Yeah. Um, oh, that's another important thing to mention is trans people can read each other's minds. So like just now, I didn't understand what Danny was thinking. Queer <laughs> 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 telepathy. It's yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Oh, what are you saying about? Yeah, clocking? and so like, and then like, within like a week of each other. Um, at two separate McDonald's, I was like, I like introduced myself. Like, I was like, how do I like let this person know without yeah. like letting them know? And so for me, again, oh, yeah. that's smart. That's, I, I have I, a I, trans, I guess people listening can't see, but I pointed out the bracelet where that's a trans flag. Oh, that's smart. So all I did was I like said, like my name, like that's like what I, I was like, hi, my name's Danielle, like nice to like meet you. And because like, I think like, so obviously we are two days past Trans Day of Visibility when we're recording this. Are we allowed to tell people when we're recording? I don't know. Um, I do it all the time. Okay. All right. So, oh, I have so many thoughts on Trans Day of Visibility, by the way. Yeah. So can we talk about that? So well, wait, I want to finish up the passing conversation. Yes. Thing, just because yes. I also have a lot of thoughts on passing. Right. right. Okay. So while well, I recognize like passing is 100% a safety measure used to use by trans people to save their own life, essentially. Um. I still think the idea that all trans people should pass, which I think is an idea commonly held by like cis, uh, cis people who maintain cis normative beliefs, right? Um, 
I, th I think that's like deeply problematic. Um, one, like non-binary people just can't pass. It's like there is no such thing as passing as non-binary. Um, passing is like a very medically um, medically bound term, right? Because in order to pass, you need to be able, like for the most part, except for some very few exceptions, you'll need to be able to like, take hormones, get surgeries, uh, do voice training, um, right. and all of those things are super gatekept by ability and class and race. Right. Um, and, and like, so like, I think if you're a trans person and you're able to live without passing, um, I think you should do that to be honest. Right. I but think, I also I think, think and that's that why like, I don't try and pass anymore because yeah. I don't want to feed into those harmful norms and expectations. But I also think that there's a difference between passing as cis and passing as your gender identity. I actually don't know if there's a difference. Okay. Because I don't know what it means to pass as a woman without looking like a cis woman. Well, I think people can know that I am a woman and also know that I'm trans. Does that make sense? To me, the understanding of passing was that someone would, like a... Uh, someone with whom you had like no prior interaction with would read you as the gender that you're attempting to pass as without like any outside knowledge. So like the only thing that they see is you, no right. verbal interaction or something. So, and like, or if you're talking about voice passing, like, yeah. it's just like your voice that they yeah. hear. Yeah. yeah. It's always fun when I like go to the drive-thru and they're like, yes, ma'am, is there anything else for you? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they say yes, man, to me, and I just pretend the man is a ma'am. Really? <laughs> of course, my voice sounds. You hear, you hear me? Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I don't know. Like people often think that I am saying yes, man. I'm always saying yes, man. But anyhow, um, so so those are so, my thoughts on passing. It'd be great right. if trans people all just collectively decide to not pass. Right. Um, but unfortunately, so this brings me different. to a personal experience with, um, so. I'd like to clarify, I think it's great when anyone, like, challenges, like, these beliefs about gender. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't think anyone is harmed by Harry Styles wearing a dress, right? By any man, quote-unquote, wearing mm -hmm. a dress, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone is hurt by that. But it can be frustrating for me, whereas, like, probably, like, two or three years ago, me, like, throwing on makeup and a dress was enough for people to at least ask me like if I was like trans or not. Now it's almost like not enough, right? Like now, like I've had several cases right. where like people are just like, oh, look at you, like cool man, like brave man, like wearing a dress. Mm -hmm. Like but I'm not a man like wearing a dress. And like for, for, a, for a second, it almost felt worse to be perceived as a man wearing a dress than just a man, right? Because now instead of me, because now not only am I being perceived as a man, I have put in all this work to be <laughs> yeah. perceived as a man, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But let's get to this conversation. About trans visibility. About trans visibility. <laughs> I, I also saw somewhere where... Um, they saw Happy Tidov, and they were like, is this a Jewish holiday that I forgot about? 
yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so so Trans Day of Visibility, um, right? March thirty first is this day where cis people tell trans people, you know, Happy Trans Day of Visibility. Um, I'm clocking you. I know you're trans. Don't ever forget that I know that you're trans. Yeah. Um, or it's trans people, you know, posting on Instagram, posting on Snapchat, on Twitter, on social media, saying. Hi, I'm trans. Uh, look at me, I'm trans. Well, but, <laughs> no, that, that wasn't supposed to be said. In no, a, no, in no, a I know. But I mean, um, like I'm, I'm visible today. But I, th I, I see a couple issues. One um, in that I think the idea of trans day of visibility uh, has created this like false sense of security in that like it's okay to be visibly trans on trans day of visibility um it's okay to be openly and like proudly trans and there won't be any sociocultural ramifications for outing yourself like that um so so that's one issue i see uh of course the there's the cis people you know telling trans people they know happy trans day of visibility um it just seem it feels uncomfortable to me like why um and then my third issue with it is i think it creates this like implicit idea that on every other day trans people are supposed to be hidden um hit like obscured from the uh, public eye uh not supposed to be visibly trans right which i don't like right so i I, I should also say that this is my first. Yes, yes, that's so. I didn't want to over overcut yes. the important in that. Right. When I was, you know, very early on in my transgender journey, uh, seeing Trans Day of Visibility and seeing like the social recognition of it and trans people being proud, like, was representation is important, right? You know? And that that was helpful to me. Right. Um, but I don't think we can dismiss the issues yeah. with it. So I have a, a criticism about the way that um, transness is celebrated and perceived in general. And then also kind of a point that I like about trans day visibility and like how it's called and like all of that. Mm -hmm. But I'll get to my first point first. And that is that so often, like even on these days, like trans day visibility, like all of my friends will be posting on um, social media, like how much they love Hunter Schaefer, how much they love India Moore, how much they love Laverne Cox, right? Mm -hmm. All these absolutely beautiful um, trans feminine folks, right? Mm -hmm. but who pass, who pass. Who pass, who are incredibly beautiful, who are now incredibly wealthy and rich. Even if they weren't, sorry, I don't know any of their like full life stories, but um, it, it feels like that aspect of it is almost like, okay, I have to like get to that point to be loved and respected, by, mm. which is not a place that feels comfortable, which is not a place that feels great. And for a lot of trans people, that's impossible. Right. Right. Yeah, I like, I would I, agree with that. Like, so for like like for me, I I will be open and honest. Like, I cannot like start thinking about like transitioning like medically mm -hmm. until I am able to be either or both like financially independent from my parents or off my parents' 
health insurance. Right. Right. Like I just will not be able to mm -hmm. do um, that. Yeah. Right. Because these, these trans people who we're talking about, you know, uh, Hunter Schaefer, Laverne Cox, India Moore, um, those are the trans people that media uh, and society has told us are like acceptable. Right. Right. Um, which again creates this implicit idea that if you're not that, you're not the norm. You're not acceptable. But really, within the trans community at large, people like Hunter Schaefer, you know, they are not the norm. Most trans people uh, are not wealthy um, and all in the media and past, and we're on puberty blockers since the day they came out the womb. I should be clear here that. I love all those folks. And oh, I, think I love Hunter Schaefer. Right. Without a doubt. And, and, I, and I think that they yeah. are like beautiful and wonderful. And I, I think for me, like they made me feel like comfortable. Mm -hmm. Like that, like, yes, like there is some celebration of like my. Yes. It was fantastic to watch that. Euphoria and watch someone inject uh -huh. uh, estrogen. Like that's great. Yeah. yeah. Another, another thing is, is that things like, things like, um, uh, International Trans Day of Visibility. It's yet another day where a lot of people engage in performative activism where they don't go beyond right. posting something on their Instagram story. Mm -hmm. They don't actually confront anything within themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't need Trans Day of Visibility if transness wasn't a marginalized right. position. Right. Um, Right. So, like, instead of just being performative and saying, oh, yay, trans day of visibility, like, go do something about the systems that reproduce transphobia. Right. So, I, that... I will say why I like the specific framing of visibility as mm -hmm. how we celebrate yeah. transness on this day. And that, for me, is that there, it's not my transness that is invisible to a lot of people in my life. It is my identity in and of itself that is invisible for me personally right like for me like my existence as a woman mm -hmm. is invisible to a lot of people in my life right um for safety reasons for ignorance reasons for active choices of malice on their part mm -hmm. whatever it may be there there are so many people that i cannot be seen as a woman to them, whether that's their choice or mine. And it feels like just for a second, like on this day, like I am reminded myself that there are certain people that I yes. can be visible to. Right. And right. that for me, like, again, as like, as you said, like as a baby trans, like <laughs> quite helpful. Mm -hmm. And that's, why I like I really don't think the uh, impetus to you know make Trans Day a visibility uh, unnecessary. I don't think that falls upon trans people uh, right. to any like huge extent. Um, now I don't know if cis people would make these observations and then do something about those observations if it wasn't for trans people pointing them out. So. Maybe it does fall upon trans people in the yeah. end. So I want to kind of think about this idea. So like for me, like part of my frustration um, has been in the way that like I have 
personally like had to educate with mm-hmm. myself. Like my entire existence includes educating other people. Mm-hmm. Right? Like there is not a day where I don't have to like explain who I am to someone. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think that I mean I, I think that's another one of those things that like we're working away from, right? That we will eventually be able to get past. But how do we go about that? And what is the healthiest way to do so? Right. And and that's something that I think I had like briefly mentioned earlier was this concept of like sanctioned ignorance. Like right. unless a trans person or a queer person like goes out of their way to do something, it is societally okay um, to be ignorant about queer and trans issues, right? And I, I think, unfortunately, um, it does fall upon queer and trans people to do something about that. Uh, and then personally, I'd say it would be in the way of, like, radical um, vulnerability, right? Yeah. When you work to humanize yourself to the extreme that will work to counteract the dehumanizing efforts of homophobes and transphobes right um and it's difficult it's a mentally and emotionally taxing uh position but you know what's new right but like like cis het men have never white cis het men have never had to humanize themselves. Yeah, I mean, right? that, and that's what I'm saying. Like, it sucks, right. but yes, it no, shouldn't absolutely. be this way. We absolutely. shouldn't have to do this, but I think we kind of do. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that's a really, really good place to end the episode. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. This, this was so nuanced. Oh, so good. <laughs> I'm glad. Very thank good. you again for having us yeah thank you so much this was very fun <laughs> <laughs> all right that's our show thank you so much to amelia and danny for coming on to the show if you haven't yet please subscribe to us on whatever platform you get your podcasts please follow us on social media our instagram is at 2024 underscore podcast Our Twitter is at 2024pod. Our Facebook is 2024, the class of activism. Our editor and producer is Grace Herzog. Our graphic designer is Cass Bradley. Our social media coordinator is Hunter Asme. Our policy specialists are Katie Kraft and Jada Hunter. Our legal analyst is Dee Huey. And the intro and outro song is by Joakim Karu. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.